Why don't we start this morning in Mark chapter 11. We've been teaching a series on uh, the ABCs of faith. And we've identified those ABCs as what faith is, how to get faith, and then how to release your faith or use your faith. I, uh, I really thought that I was through with this after uh, last Sunday morning service, but the Lord has uh, um, directed me this week to, uh, to add something to it. I don't know if this is the, the end of the series or, or not. Like I said, I thought I was through with the series last week, but we'll just have to see as we go. But, uh, but I want to I add something to this and, and uh, kind of tie some things together uh, on the subject of faith. Jesus is uh, speaking on the subject of faith in Mark chapter 11. After having cursed the fig tree and seen a supernatural result, his disciples saw a supernatural result. And he, uh, he spoke some words that are, in my opinion, the most concise um, and complete teaching on the subject of faith that you can get. Uh, if we didn't have any other scriptures on the subject of faith regarding the subject of faith, instructing us on, on how to use faith or anything like that, you could operate successfully just on what Jesus said here in Mark chapter 11. So he said, Jesus explained to them how he, the fig tree uh, came to be in the uh, the um, uh, deadened condition after having been cursed the, the previous morning. Jesus, verse 22, answering, said unto them, Have faith in God. Now, the translation says, Have the faith of God. Prepositions are really um, kind of iffy in, in Scripture. There are uh, many of the prepositions that are that are interchanged for others that uh, the translators um, picked one instead of another because it worked better for the, the English language, the flow of the English language. This is one of those cases. This word in is literally the word of. And the translators just interposed or trans, uh, transposed the preposition in for of because it sounded better when they, when they wrote it out in English. It literally says, have the faith of God. Now, the reason that that's important is because God is a descriptive type of faith. In the way that it's used here, in the way that Jesus spoke from the original Greek, he says, have the faith of God. Well, what kind of faith is of God? Well, the only way we could identify that is the God kind of faith. The faith of God would be the God kind of faith, wouldn't it? So he says, have the God kind of faith. Literally, that's what he's saying. He's saying how or utilize, operate in the God kind of faith. I don't know about you, but it blesses me to know that I can operate in the same kind of faith that God does. Same kind of faith that Jesus used when he cursed the fig tree. Jesus didn't say this happened because I was the son of God. You can't do this because you're not. In other words, uh, but instead he said you can operate in the same kind of faith that God does. Have the God kind of faith or the faith of God. For verily I say unto you, he's going to describe and explain how that works. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. In other words, the God kind of faith believes in the heart and says with the mouth. God created the worlds by looking into darkness instead of saying, Wow, it's dark out there. He didn't speak to circumstance. He didn't say what he saw. He said what he desired. He said, Light be. And light was. In the same manner, Jesus looked at a tree that appeared to be, from all outward appearances, appeared to be fruitful because it had leaves on it, but he saw that there weren't any figs on it, so he cursed it. He cursed what was an apparently living, or well, was a living and thriving tree, but because it didn't have fruit on it, when it should have, and that's the purpose that trees were created for, is to bear fruit, which is the same reason that you and I are left here on the earth, is to bear fruit. Jesus cursed that fig tree. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He didn't say what it looked like. He didn't say, wow, you're a green tree. 
I wish you had more fruit on you. Maybe next week it'll be better. No, Jesus looked at the tree, saw the true condition of it, and said, No man eat fruit of the hereafter forever. And the fig tree dried up in the roots by the next morning. So the God kind of faith doesn't speak according to the circumstances. It doesn't speak according to what it sees or feels. It speaks according to that which is real. And that which is real is the basis and foundation of faith, and that's the word of God. Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Faith speaks the word of God into the circumstance instead of speaking the circumstance. That's the God kind of faith. The God kind of faith speaks the word of God into the circumstance instead of saying what the circumstance appears to be. Now Jesus goes on and tells us, notice he didn't say one word about praying. He's talking about believing and saying in verse 23. Verse 24, he talks about how faith works in prayer. Therefore, I say unto you, in other words, because this is how the God kind of faith works. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now, the belief that you receive has to refer back to verse 23 because he ties them together with the therefore. So since we know from verse 23 that the God kind of faith speaks the word of God into the circumstance instead of what things look like. Therefore, believe that you receive them has to be has to mean to speak the word of God into that which you desire instead of what things look like. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire. Sounds like a pretty big area that you have to work with. What things soever you desire is a big territory. Now, you understand since faith is the, the foundation of faith is the word of God, those desires have to be based on God's word. You can't just jump out there in left field somewhere and start saying a bunch of goofy stuff and expect that to work because faith, the God kind of faith, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So those desires have to be created by God's word taking root on the inside of you. God's word revealed to us. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, notice when talks about time, when you pray, believe. When do you pray or when do you believe? When you pray. When you pray, believe that you receive them. Again, verse 23 would define that as speaking the word of God. When you pray instead of when you see it. When you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Notice the believing comes before the having. The believing has to take place. What Jesus defined as faith in prayer or the prayer of faith, believing takes place before you have them. When do you believe? Before you have it. When do you have it? After you believe. And that's exactly the opposite of what most people want to do. Most people want to pray and then wait to see what happens and then say that's what they've got. And that's contrary to what Jesus is defining as the God kind of faith. Now, there is something that that we might identify as natural human faith. Natural human faith is uh, the the natural tendency to believe what you see. And that's the, the kind of faith that a lot of people operate on. They believe what they see. Now, to a degree, we all operate that way. For example, when you came in the auditorium this morning, you put your stuff down in the chair and then you sat down in it, right? Well, you didn't test the chair. No, you're used to chairs working to support your weight. So unless you've had a particularly rough week, you'd expect that chair to to work its magic. (laughs) We trust things that we see. 
We get ready to cross the street. We look both ways. We trust what we see on the traffic. That's natural. That's, that's okay. But there are certain areas when it comes to receiving from God, that kind of faith won't work. The kind of faith that looks at the circumstances and accepts the circumstance as it is, and that's the way that it's going to be, and therefore it must be what God wills, that's not the kind of faith that receives from God. The kind of faith that receives from God believes what it, what it desires when it prays. And then it brings about the desired result. Now, in verse 25, Jesus hadn't quit talking yet. It's still in red. Notice verse 25 says, and when you stand praying. Now, some people will say of verse 24 that, that Mark eleven twenty four is just not for everybody. But notice the subject of verse 24 is prayer. So if Mark eleven twenty four is not for everybody, then that means not everybody's supposed to pray. Therefore, we're left with the unhappy dilemma of trying to figure out who should pray and who shouldn't pray. But no, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So everybody's supposed to pray. So it's kind of amusing to me that some people will talk about faith and the prayer of faith. Well, that's just not for everybody. Jesus says specifically that, that the subject of Mark eleven twenty four is prayer. And it's continuing with the same subject in verse 25 because he says, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught or anything against anyone, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Now, if you take all the things that Jesus said about the subject of faith, if you go through the four Gospels and write out on a sheet of paper everything Jesus said on the, the subject of faith, there's quite a lot of things, as a matter of fact. But you'll find that this is the only thing that he mentions as a hindrance. This is the only time, the only instance, that he makes mention of a hindrance to your faith working. Well, if we're talking about the ABCs of faith and we want to make our faith work effectively, then we've got to cover this too, don't we? Notice what he says. He said that unforgiveness will stop faith from working. Unforgiveness will stop faith from working. Now, turn with me over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 6, Jesus said, "For in, uh, I'm sorry, Paul said by the Holy Ghost, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. In other words, he's saying because we're in the new covenant, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. Now he's writing to the Gentiles. The Jews were, were filtered out through this uh, region of Galatia. We know that because they stirred up trouble and persecuted Paul in, in uh, one place. They even stoned him and left him for dead. So Paul's preaching in the region of Galatia stirred up a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. And he knows who he's talking to when he writes this. As a matter of fact, many Bible scholars, I happen to agree with them, not that I'm a Bible scholar, but I think they're right on this, uh, uh, believe that the book of Galatians was attached to the letter written to the Hebrews. That may be the reason why the, the author of the book of Hebrews doesn't identify himself, because if they were connected together, that it would make sense that Paul writing the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, and identifying himself there would be identified as the author to the rest of the letter. And uh, later on in the book of Galatians in chapter 6, Paul says, you see what a large letter I've written with my own hand. Well, that could mean one of two things. That could mean he's writing in real big letters, which some people say Paul had an eye as these did. And, and folks, i got to tell you, I think that's just too stupid to respond to. Another thing that it could mean is it was a long letter. 
Well, six chapters is certainly not a long letter as far as what Paul wrote. The book of Galatians is, is one of the shorter letters that he wrote. Well, why would he say it was a long letter unless there was something else attached to it? But if you book the book, put, put the book of Hebrews together with the book of Galatians, the letter that written to the Galatians, that's a long, a long letter. So that there are many other supporting, um, evidences that, uh, that might support the idea that the Galatians and Hebrews were tied together. But my point is very simply this. Paul wrote to the Galatians and told them, you're not Jews and don't let the Jews tell you you've got to be a Jew. As Gentiles, you don't have to keep the law of Moses and don't let the Jews tell you you do. So that's what he's talking about circumcision or uncircumcision to the Galatians about because they're under pressure by the Jews to change their lifestyle to fit the law of Moses. And he's saying, Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, it doesn't matter. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. It's not the sign of the new covenant. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. Well, if that doesn't count, Paul, what does count? Notice what counts with God. Once you're in Christ, notice what counts with God. But faith which worketh by love. Faith which worketh by love. Now, he could have just said, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision but faith. Now, that would be true. Because faith is what counts. Faith is the way you receive from God. Faith is the way you please God. Faith is the lifestyle that is demanded of those that are in Christ. The just shall live by faith. But the Holy Ghost seems to believe it was important enough to impress upon Paul, to inspire Paul, to tell us how faith can be active and effective. So he says faith is the thing that counts with God, and it works by love. Well, now, doesn't that imply that it won't work without love? Otherwise, why put it in there? Faith which worketh by love. If it doesn't matter, if your love walk doesn't matter, why, why speak about it at all? Why mention it? I don't think the Holy Ghost wasted words here. I certainly don't think he missed it or made a mistake. He said that faith which works by love is what counts with God. Now, isn't that exactly what Jesus was telling us in Mark chapter 11? And when you stand praying, forgive. Isn't unforgiveness the number one way that we have, uh, that we are tempted to step outside of and walk outside of love? It sure is for me. It sure is for me. Faith works by love. So if we want our faith to work, once we find out what faith is, once we find out how to get faith, once we find out how to release our faith by speaking the word of God, shouldn't we also know that faith won't work effectively without love? Well, sure we should. Certainly we should. Now, won't you turn with me over to uh, Galatians chapter 5? Well, you're already in Galatians chapter 5. You knew where I was going. Good move. Notice Paul says, let's start reading in verse 16. Paul says, this I say, then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you, that you would. Um, and uh, Connie Bear's translation says so that you, uh, these are contrary one to the other to hinder you from the things that you would do from your inside, your, your inner man, your spirit. In other words, he's saying there's a difference and a conflict and a war 
between your will and your actions in many cases. And that conflict is what Paul describes in his own situation in Romans chapter 7 and 8, how he came to the place of victory. It's the same conflict that we all have. Now, if you'll notice in verse 16 or verse uh, 17, where it says the flesh lusts against the spirit, the translators capitalized the word spirit because they thought he was talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, folks, the Holy Spirit doesn't have any trouble with flesh. He doesn't have flesh. He doesn't have problems with your flesh. It's your spirit that has trouble with your flesh. That's where the conflict is. It's you want to do the right thing from the inside where you've been made a new creature in Christ Jesus and your flesh, the outer man, wanting to do something else. Now, we've all got a flesh to contend with, don't we? I mean, the natural uh, tendency and inclination of the flesh is you spit on me and I'll spit on you. You talk about me and I'll talk about you. And it shows up in some of the silliest ways. We can be watching a ball game and our team's doing good and all of a sudden the other team gets the ball and we say, kill him. Well, we just got that tendency. We want things our way. We want things to go the way that we want them to go. And anything that seems to hinder that or get in the way, we want it destroyed immediately. I don't know about you, but I have to keep the flesh under when it comes to politics. I think it would be right of God to kill every evil politician on the face of the earth. But you got to keep the flesh under. The Bible says pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for those that persecute you. Actually, it says pray for those that despitefully persecute you. That means on purpose. Man, that's tough. That's really tough. Now, what does it mean to walk in love? What does it really come down to to walk in love? Well, let's keep reading here. He's talking about walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit would be walking in love because God is love. If the Holy Spirit is a manifestation of the, of the uh, Trinity or a manifestation of the person of God, a part of the Trinity, then that means whatever God is is the Holy Spirit too. And if the Bible says, and it does, that God is love, then that means the Holy Spirit is love. So if you're walking in the Spirit, in other words, walking impressed upon and led by and guided by the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to be walking in love. Now, I know a lot of people that want to walk in faith, but they don't want to walk in love. And that won't work. At least it won't work effectively. They may be filled with the knowledge of the Word. They may, have, they may know the, the Bible backwards and forwards, at least the Scriptures that they want to confess for themselves for their own well-being, but it won't work without love. So he says, walk in the spirit and not, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the spirit and the flesh lust against one another. Verse 18, but if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. If you're led of the spirit, he's always going to lead you into love, isn't he? Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, like he needed to tell us. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you. Notice he said such like. In other words, he's saying, and this isn't the complete list. He means things like this. Now, if you stop and look at that list without going into detail about what this word means and what that word means, and the King James doesn't really help us too much on some of the meanings of these, but you know what enough of them mean to get the idea but notice that he says, of all of these things, there's not a one of these things that you would perform in your life or, or do if you're really walking in love. 
You're not going to commit adultery with another man's wife if you're walking in love. Wives are not going to commit adultery with another woman's husband if they're walking in love. Now, that's walking in love toward God and walking in love toward their fellow man. If people understand what fornication does to the body and what the the consequence is, sinning against your own flesh, if you're walking in love toward God and even loving yourself, like the Bible says to, you're not going to commit fornication. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. It's absolutely true, folks. Love is the fulfilling of the law. You walk in love, you don't have to worry about not do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing. Because walking in love will keep you doing that which God's spirit on the inside of you impresses upon you to do. And that's where we need to work on being led by the spirit as much as or more than any other area of life. Most people want to be led of the spirit in finances. Show me how to get rich, Lord. Show me how to be successful on my job. Well, he'll lead you into all of those things. But we ought to put love first. We ought to say, show us how to walk in love, Lord. Holy Spirit, I yield myself to you. You show me how to walk in love today. Perfect love today. So he concludes this list and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past. So he's told them this before. He told them this when he was with them. That they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean? Isn't he writing to Christians? Is he saying people that do these things can't be saved? Well, they're already saved. If he's writing this to the unsaved, why in the world would he tell them about the the lust of the flesh versus the walking in the spirit? Why wouldn't he tell them about Jesus and Jesus crucified? This is not written to to the unsaved. This is not written to the world. This is written to the church. And what he's saying is, if you saved people still... Keep walking according to the world in adultery and fornication and lasciviousness and uncleanness and witchcraft and envyings and murders and strife and such like. If you Christians keep doing that, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation. It means their faith won't work to bring the blessings of God to them here. Because faith works by love. And each one of these things that are that are mentioned and things such like this list, are all steps outside of love. So he's saying, if you want to forfeit the blessings of God here on the earth, you just keep living like the unsaved people do. You'll make it into heaven. Because heaven is not determined by what you do or what you don't do here on the earth outside of making Jesus the Lord of your life. Heaven is dependent on one thing, and that's receiving Jesus. It's not dependent on lifestyle. Now, folks, let me give you a little history lesson, a little short history lesson. We know from the history of the Pentecostal movement in our our country, it started in 1906 in Azusa Street, the Azusa Street Revival and, and thereabouts. There was something that happened a couple of years before that in Topeka, Kansas, but it was a real small thing. So everybody recognizes the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 as uh, as the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in America. Since that time, there are more Pentecostals that have come into the kingdom of God, and it's the fastest growing worldwide, not just in America, but worldwide, it's the fastest growing element of Christianity, is Pentecostal. In other words, those that believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Now, 
Very soon after 1906, just um, well, eight years later, in 1914, the first Pentecostal denomination was organized, the Assemblies of God. Now, the Assemblies of God, over the next several years after their founding, there were some uh, disagreements up front because there was a, a real split in the, the founding of this thing. What are we going to say is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? Their Pentecostal denomination was all about uh, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but what are they saying is the, is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? One group said, well, Jesus said you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. But then the other group said, but tongues is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. And so there was a split between the two. And there were a good number of people that wouldn't become a part of the, of the Assembly of God organization because of that split. John Lake was one of them. John Lake wouldn't go with the, the speaking with tongues group because he said it's about power. Well, he wasn't saying that he was against speaking in tongues, and he did speak with other tongues, but he said that power should be the evidence. Well, as you would well imagine, the beginning of anything, you're going to have less knowledge of it than as you go forward and and grow and, and so forth. Now we understand that tongues is the evidence of the presence of the power. So both groups were right. But there were disagreements, and and as a result, there were splits over doctrine and, and so forth. But in the 20s and the 30s, the Assemblies of God organization, and I'm not, I'm not speaking against them as, a, as uh, individuals. I don't have anything to do with them. I'm not their judge. I'm just telling you the history of things. I'm just trying to report things as they, as they really are. Over the 20s, during the 20s and the 30s, the, uh, the Assembly of God, which was primarily the, the, certainly the biggest, almost the only Pentecostal groups that were out there, at least the only recognized ones, accepted Arminianism. Now, Arminianism is the reverse of Calvinism. Calvinism is what most of the fundamentalist doctrines uh, or denominations accept. Once saved, always saved is, is kind of the, the summary of Calvinism. Well, Arminianism saw scriptures in the Bible that says about uh, grieving the Spirit of God, doing despite for the Spirit of grace, and so forth. And so they said, well, you can lose your salvation. Arminius was a, a, a German scholar just uh, or a... Um, yeah, he was a German scholar, if I've got that right. Anyway, he was from somewhere else. America didn't have any doctrinal scholars. Doesn't have any now. But anyway, uh, his, his whole thing was, well, once saved, always saved can't be the case because look at scriptures like Hebrews chapter six, where you can, you can grieve the Holy Ghost and, and, uh, and he can depart from you and stuff like that. There's got to be a way for that. And as I said, the beginning of something, there's always less information and less understanding about things than as you grow and, and uh, things develop. And so they accepted Arminianism. And so as a result, the Pentecostal organizations in America primarily, almost without exception, but primarily accepted that you get saved and when you sin, you lose your salvation and you have to get saved again and again and again and again and again whenever you sin. Well, consequently, that creates... This, uh, this attitude of you better do right or else. And it creates this idea of condemnation. Because who can ever live their lives without ever missing it in any way whatsoever? Well, if every time you miss it, you gotta get saved again, you lose your salvation and therefore have to get saved again. What if, and here, this was the big denominational or doctrinal debate in the, in the Pentecostal circles. What if somebody dies between the time that they miss it and ask forgiveness again? What happens to them then? Well, they came to the point where they accepted that that person just goes to hell because they go to hell as an unsaved person. Well, folks, that's just dumb. 
If that were the case, then the work of Jesus would never be finished. What's he sitting down at the right hand of the Father for? You should be here on the earth making sure that everybody, I mean, you'd be going to the cross every day for everybody. It's just nuts. But the consequence, the unintended consequence, is it created its own law and its own ritual of lifestyle. You better do right or else. And so the question comes in, and this was among Pentecostals more so than any other group. Now, the, uh, the, the Baptists and some of the fundamental denominations, they are still rife with people that wonder, have I lost my salvation? Have I done something to, lost my, to lose my salvation? But my denomination says, once saved, always saved, so no matter what, I'm still in. And for the most part, they've got that right. There are some exceptions. Hebrews 6 is a good example. But there are some exceptions. But otherwise, they're pretty much on track with that. But the Pentecostals were back and forth. They were back and forth because they didn't know if they were in or they were out. So they developed the idea that if I don't do right, even the power of God that we believe in, the Holy Ghost that we're filled with, can't operate through us. So you got things like the healing revival that comes along in the 1950s, to 57 to 68, or 58 to 67. You got the healing revival that came along and God started using people and almost to prove, it it looks to me, you judge it for yourself, but it looks to me like almost to prove that God didn't need perfect people. He picked some of the people to use that had the lousiest character that you can imagine. I mean, one guy would go out and get drunk after the services, get thrown in jail, hit the newspapers the next morning and come to church, come to this uh, crusade that night and deny it and say the devil was telling lies about him and get people healed right and left. Well, that caused a lot of, uh, of people to scratch their heads. People that knew what was really going on said, how could God use somebody that lives like that? Charismatic revival came along in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. Charismatic revival came along where it was an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. You had Baptist, or had, uh, what's their names? Catholic churches that were getting filled with the Holy Ghost. Not that they were ever against it. They just didn't know. They found out about Jesus, found out about the Holy Ghost, and God started filling the Catholics like crazy. Groups like Full Gospel Businessmen sprang up and got the Holy Ghost into circles that that that, that the church never could have done in, in and of itself in its present condition at that point in time. But still, at that point in time, there was a weakness in character among the people. There was a display of power, but a weakness in character. Folks, if there is one weakness... In the Pentecostal movement, it is that there is no solid, consistent teaching on sanctification. It shouldn't be a surprise to us because we see the same thing described in the book of Corinth or in the letter written to the Corinth, the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians particularly. Paul talked about how that they didn't come behind in one good gift. They had the gifts of the Spirit in manifestation, but man, you never saw a church that was more outside of the love walk that, that God intended for us to have. They were a church that were filled with sin, sexual immorality, drunkenness. All kinds of things were taking place in the church, yet they had the power of God in demonstration and in display in their services. Well, how do you justify these things? You justify these things by recognizing very simply that there is a difference between the flesh of man and the spirit of man. That's why Paul says, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of flesh. Now, you could interpose or interchange, walk in love, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because that's what walking in the spirit is. That's not all that it is. But that's included in walking in the spirit. So he tells us what the flesh does, like we needed to know. 
We had that part figured out already, but the Holy Ghost wanted to make sure we had a list. But here's the contrast. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, literally faithfulness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying if you live an unsanctified life, even though you're saved, you're not going to inherit the blessings of God here on the earth because faith works by love, not because God's mad at you, because faith works by love, and it won't work without love. But if you'll walk in the Spirit, which is walking in love, walking in joy, walking in peace, walking in long-suffering, sometimes we have to suffer long with folks in situations, don't we? The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick, but, oh, when the desire comes. One translation says when your breakthrough comes, it's a tree of life. So we have to be long-suffering because God doesn't always fix things as fast as we want them to. But if we hang in there, faith and patience will inherit the promises. Walking in the Spirit is walking in gentleness. Gentleness means kindness. Isn't it sad that he'd have to tell us that we have to be kind or should be kind? Walking in the Spirit is walking in goodness. It's walking in faithfulness. You know, it's the hardest thing in the world. Proverbs says this. It says, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a joint, uh, a bone out of joint. But a faithful man who can find? Faithful people are tough to find, and they shouldn't be. You know why faithful people are tough to find? Because you can't find too many Christians that will walk in spirit. You can't find too many people that will put the spiritual things, the things that, that, uh, that are new creation realities the things that changed when God made them a new creature in Christ, you can't find too many people who put those things first. That wasn't just true in, Bible, in the Old Testament days. That's true today. Walking in the Spirit means you walk in meekness. Now, meekness doesn't mean beaten down and doormat and that kind of stuff. Meekness just simply means teachableness. In other words, walking in the Spirit means you can't be a know-it-all. We all know people are like that. Or aren't they a joy to be around? Walking in the Spirit is walking in temperance. In other words, self-control. He said, now, if you do this, there is no law against that. Why? Because that's the fulfilling of the law of love. That's the fulfilling of the law of love. I learned some, some great lessons from both Brother Hagen and John Osteen. Brother Hagen was a man that was persecuted by experts. There would be ever so often, every month or two, there would be an article that would come out that would name his name, put his picture on there, some little pipsqueak somewhere that fashioned himself to be some doctrinal scholar would take some little piece of something that Brother Hagin said and blow it all out of proportion or take it out of context and try to make him say something he didn't say. After a while, you really questioned the honesty of some of the people that were attacking him. It wasn't a matter of, hey, we don't understand this. It was people lying and knowing that they were lying about it. Brother Hagen told one guy that the last uh, magazine interview he did with one of these so-called scholars sitting in his office. Brother Hagen said uh, he answered the guy's questions. And finally, at the end, he said, you know, he said, I've always wondered whether you guys were ignorant or dishonest. Whether you just didn't know what we were saying or if you were dishonestly presenting what you knew not to be true. He said, I've just about decided that most of you are dishonest. 
Well, after having talked to the guy for an hour and a half during the interview, he saw exactly where the guy was coming from. The guy would ask a question and didn't want the answer. He just wanted to be able to say that he asked the question and here's what he thought about it. But I never heard Brother Hagin say a word about any of these people. Man, I wanted to kill them. I was just sure after, after being with Brother Hagin for a year or two, I was just sure that God had sent me there to be his assassin. <laughs> just send me out, Brother Hagin. I'll take care of these people, make every one of them look like an accident. We'll get rid of a lot of this stuff. And Brother Hagin just laughed. I told him that one time. Brother Hagin just laughed. He just kicked his legs, snapped his knee, and he thought that was so funny. I never heard Brother Hagin say one word against anybody that spoke against him. Well, I, I got to, I, I want to be perfectly honest with you about this. I was not in a mature state of Christianity at the time. This may be a surprise to you, but I was not always a spiritual giant. Well, I'm just kidding. I, not that I think that I'm one now. That's what I mean. What I'm kidding about. But uh, but I, I had some real trouble with some of this stuff because I thought, now wait a minute, Brother Hagin, you got to stand up for what's right. You got to stand up for the truth. You got to you got to do what's right. Because so many times people think walking in love and looking at Brother Hagin from the outside. So many people thought that walking in love just meant you just sat back and you just took everything that came. Well, I don't see Paul doing that. Acts 23, Paul standing up before the high council, and he said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God and man unto this day. And the high priest commanded the, one of the other guys to, to strike Paul across the face. And Paul didn't sit back and say, Well, I'm just going to walk in love. God bless you. Paul turned around and said, You whited sepulcher. I don't know if that corresponded to you. I don't know. That may have been Jewish for you so-and-so. I don't know. But somebody spoke up and said, you're speaking that way to the high priest. And then Paul backed up and said, well, I didn't know he was a high priest. I shouldn't have said that to the high priest. Forgive me for saying that to the high priest. The implication there is if he hadn't been the high priest, everything I said was true. So I don't see Paul being some wallflower. I don't see him backing up and never addressing anything. Charles Finney, reading Charles Finney's autobiography was a, was a real eye-opener for me. It showed me some things about the way that God used him, the power of God that used him. But there was one person, and folks, this is not unusual. You find people that were always used, great men of God that were used in a great way by God. You'll find that there was always one or maybe two or a group, small group of people that would persecute these people anywhere and everywhere they went. Sometimes they would follow him around. Other times they would just ride against him and so forth. Well, the guy that started off with Finney turned out to be his greatest critic. And he told all kinds of things that were untrue about the way that they were handling the finances of the ministry and different things like that. Just lie after lie after lie. And Finney never said a word. Well, finally, toward the end of Finney's life, Finney realized that he needed to address these things. The problem was the other guy had already died. So it looked to everybody that now he's only addressing things because the other guy's dead and he can't respond. And it crippled Penny's ministry at the end of his life. Crippled it. Well, I see Brother Hagin never say a word about anybody. And I, I didn't understand that. I, I, I thought, okay, I can see not speaking against them, but you gotta stand up for what's right. You gotta present the, the truth of the, the situation. 
you got to give your side of the story, so to speak. And he never would. Never, never, never would. He just went along preaching, helping the people he could help, went about his business. Well, years later, we started the church, and Beth and I were going to a uh, uh, leaders' conference. It was one of these invitation-only things down in Houston when John Osteen was still the pastor at Lakewood. And uh, it was the last one that he ever did before he went home to be with the Lord. And uh, there were some things going on in the, in the church, not our church, but in the, the American church that um, that were really, really bugging me. There was the Kingdom Now theology that was taking place, and, and there was a, a group of people that were... And, and before I say this, let me say this too. Brother Hagin taught us that every 20 years or so, the same things that the devil used to do, he'll bring back. Things recycle about every 20 years. Same things that happened in the 70s happened again in the 90s. They're happening again now. And people that haven't experienced that and people don't, don't know that, they get all a Twitter about it and they all they jump in behind the wrong thing and stuff like that. Well, if you know it's just something that's going to come back around, you do what you can to try to keep people from, from following the wrong thing. But outside of that, you just know it's the way the devil works. Well, that's part of what was going on in one of these things. There was a group of people that were giving away the gifts of the Spirit. Come, let us pray for you and... God, the gifts of the Spirit will be manifest in you and all this kind of stuff. Well, any of this kind of stuff that's, uh, that's ever done is always done to promote one person above another person. For example, uh, you see the same thing now that was happening before. When I was going to, to Ramah, there was this thing called high praises. Well, what does that mean? I mean, their, their ministry was high praises. Like nobody else has, everybody else has low praises. And then there was this thing that came about, out about prophetic worship. What in the world is that? Can I, let me answer that question for you. Here's what prophetic worship is. It's a means for somebody to sell you records because you think they've got something that the other guy doesn't have. Now we've got this thing called compl- uh, c- contemplative. I can't even say the word right. Contemplative worship. Please? contemplative worship. Let me tell you something that the Lord told Brother Hagin that is absolutely true. You can see it for yourself. Charismatics know a little bit about praising God and nothing about worshiping him. Because Romans chapter 1 says, worship, spiritual worship is presenting your body a living sacrifice. It's not about the song you sing. That doesn't mean singing songs is bad. Worship is good. It helps us bring, come into the presence of God. But worshiping God with your life is what he's after, not for 30 minutes or an hour or two hours or however long you want to go singing songs. But because there is such little teaching, little solid emphasis on sanctification, real sanctification, which is presenting your body under the Lord, a living sacrifice, and renewing your mind to the Word. That is sanctification, folks. In other words, being a doer of the word to walk in love. Because there is so little emphasis in the body of Christ, in the Pentecostal circles at least, on sanctification, people have the idea that they can come and do anything and everything they want to do because we're free in Christ. Well, that's the same attitude the Corinthians had, and the Corinthian church is the only church that we don't have absolute proof that existed beyond one generation that Paul, uh, from the time that Paul started it. It may have... But we don't know for sure. Every other church we can track from the beginning of when Paul established the church all the way up into the present day. Not the Corinthians. Only one. So anyway, there were some things going on in the body of Christ. Remember, we were going to Houston to the leadership conference. There were some things going on, and I was just chapped. We got on the plane. 
on a Monday morning, I guess it was, to fly down there. And Beth and I are sitting there in the, in the, uh, side by side in the plane. And I just started in on some of this stuff. I said, this, this aggravates me so bad. And I started talking about this. This is what these guys are doing. And can't people see it's just about money? And can't people see that they're just fleecing them for this and that and the other? And this stuff about spiritual gifts and personal prophecies and all this other kind of stuff. Can't people see what's really going on there? Well, I went on for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, I guess. I had a real good anointing for it. And Beth finally said, Mike, you just need to stop. You just need to hush. You need to walk in love. I I just think you're in the wrong on this thing. I don't remember exactly how she said it, but it shut me up in a hurry. Not because she was right. Now my anger at what's going on in the body of Christ is directed at her. (laughs) So I realized the only way I'm going to get off this flight married is for me to shut up. Well, we get to the conference, and the first session we're in, John Osteen starts saying word for word. I don't mean just same subject. Word for word, the stuff that I was saying about the people that I was upset about in the body of Christ. He was talking about things that were going on, saying word for word. And Beth just looked over at me after about 10 minutes of this. She said, Mike, I am so sorry. Yeah, those that are spiritual saw it up front. (laughs) Well, John just kept going on and on and on. And finally, it was a real informal type meeting. You know, it wasn't a a congregational type thing or anything like that. It was just a bunch of ministers around that had been invited, handpicked really, to come to this thing. Somebody finally spoke up and said, Brother Osteen, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can, can I ask you a question? He said, well, sure, yeah, this thing's wide open to ask anything you want anytime you want. He said, the, the guy that was asking the question said this, he said, how can you walk in love by saying these things that you're saying? I mean, it's one thing to say them privately to, to another individual that you know that's in ministry, but how can you say this publicly? And he said, well, first of all, I don't consider this to be a public meeting. He said, I consider this just to be us sitting around a table. It's just that our table's real big and we're having it in our auditorium. He said, But here's the other part of it. And see, here's the part that I'd missed. I was right with him on what I saw to be true. But here's the part I missed. He said, I'm not saying this because I'm judging them. I'm not saying this because I'm against anybody. I'm just recognizing the truth. He said, but now what I want you to understand is that I'm praying for every one of these people that I see doing wrong. See, that was a missing piece for me. I saw what was true. I saw what was going on. But I wasn't praying for the people doing it. And that's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. And pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I want you to notice here, it says, Paul talking about that which has been done in us. Let's start in verse 1. It says, therefore, being, literally having been justified by faith, he's uh, making a progressive argument here. It goes back to the things that he's spoken of in verse 20, uh, verse uh, chapter 4, excuse me. He said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. So what is he talking about? He's saying grace has got to be the finished work of Jesus. 
This grace is that which justified us, which was the saving work of Jesus on the cross, his sacrifice on the cross. And he says we have access by faith into this grace. Now skip down with me to verse 5. He says, and hope makes not ashamed. Well, I guess we better read the, the intervening scriptures here. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand. We stand by faith, believing in everything that Jesus accomplished for us in the cross. That's what he's saying. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have a present glory, but there's a greater glory that's coming. And not only so, but we also glory in tribulations. That means troubles, tests, trials, and adversities, afflictions. We glory in that too. In other words, we can rejoice when things are not going our way, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed. In other words, he's saying if you'll stay patient and maintain your hope in the things of God, that hope will bring you to the place of victory. Hope makes not ashamed literally means whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. The end of your faith will become a reality, will be seen in your life. And hope makes not ashamed. Why does hope make not ashamed? Now, please notice that hope is a byproduct of this faith that you're standing in. The faith that accesses the grace of God. The hope that he's talking about here is not the hope that your faith is founded on, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He's talking about the hope that comes from glorying in tribulations, from standing strong in the middle of trouble by being patient and exercising patience. He's saying that hope makes not a shame. That hope will bring you into victory because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. So notice how faith and love work together. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. When? when you are justified by faith in Jesus. Now, there's a lot of teaching in the body of Christ, and thank God for it. A lot of teaching in the body of Christ now about grace, about the love of God towards you, and the way that grace is taught as much as I can ascertain. I don't, I'm not really followers of the people that do the kind of teaching, but as much as I can ascertain, the grace of God is talked about from the standpoint of God loves you, God has provided everything for you through Jesus, God wants you to reign in this life. Thank God for that teaching. Thank God for that teaching. But there's not too much talked about love from you. There's a lot talked about love towards you, but not too much talked about love from you. And love from you is literally walking in love, is literally the sanctification process. So look at how the devil's working in the church now. It's all about love towards you. Now, I I get kind of amused because so many of these people that that are into the grace message... And I, I don't use that in a derogatory way. I'm just using what they call themselves. So many people that are into the grace message are using this as an opportunity to say, this is what God is doing in the last days. Well, folks, let me, let me make just a, a little interjection here. I don't know how to preach the finished work of Jesus more than I do. I just don't know how. I've had people leave our church. I've had people criticize me because I'm not into the grace message. Well, if the grace message means the finished work of Jesus, how do I teach the finished work of Jesus more than I do? How is that possible? But I'm not going to ignore the fact that the Bible says present your body a living sacrifice. I'm not going to ignore the fact that the Bible says renew your mind to the word. I'm not going to ignore the fact that the Bible says walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh because somebody's got some idea about God's love toward them. 
But some of the people that will do that, some of the people that will criticize us all the time, they're trying to pull people away from our church. Well, isn't that the love of God in action? God sent you to this church, but you need to leave there and go with me to another place. Isn't that lovely? Trying to stir up trouble, telling lies about things. Isn't that an amazing thing? Oh, but you don't understand. We spend hours and hours in contemplative worship. And as soon as that, we go fellowship at the bar that's got the margaritas on sale. (laughs) Folks, it's the same thing Paul talked about to the church. He said, don't use your liberty as an occasion to serve the flesh. It all comes down to the same thing. It's nothing new. Same thing the devil's been doing all along. He just emphasizes different things at different times. Now, folks, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. Turn with me over to uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll wrap this up real quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, there's so many things I want to say. And folks, i got to tell you, I'm not trying to correct anything. If you want to leave our church and go to another church, whatever it is, that's up to you. I'm not responsible to keep you here. I'm responsible to feed you while you're here. If you can be fed better, taught better, grow better in the things of God somewhere else, I insist you go. Now, here's another thing that's interesting to me. I've been criticized. For, I'll be uh, in a couple, of, a couple of months. I'll have been in the ministry for 34 years, full-time ministry for 34 years. And for 34 years, I've been criticized for not walking in love. Not because anybody really knows my life, but because of the way people see me from the outside. Because I don't give people warm, fuzzy feelings. I'm criticized for not walking in love. Now, let me ask you a question. What's a greater manifestation of love? To make you feel good about something or tell you the truth that will help you? If that's the case, Paul never walked in love. If warm, fuzzy feelings were what it's about, Paul never got there. Ever. So what's love really about? Is love really about the feeling that you get from somebody? Is love really about somebody putting their arm around your shoulder or giving you the answer to the problem that you're facing? And folks, the word is the answer. It's the only one there is that works. Notice what Paul said right into the church. Let's start reading in verse 23, Ephesians chapter 4. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He's talking about you doing something about your mind, right? And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In other words, he's saying renewing your mind will change your lifestyle. Renewing your mind will change the way you live. It will change the things you do in your life. So God must want things to change in their lives. If the Holy Ghost inspires Paul to say to the Ephesian church. Now, folks, you got to realize the Ephesian church was the top of the pile. It was the best of the best churches. It was the famous church. It was the biggest church. It was the church that had the most celebrities. Timothy was the pastor there. John was a part of the church for a while. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was part of the church at Ephesus for a while. I mean, the church at Ephesus was the who's who of the church world. And notice how how Paul writes to those that are part of the biggest, the best, the most famous church around. Change the way you live. 
Here's the message of the Holy Ghost to them. Start living right. No condemnation about it. See, here's the, here's the criticism. Oh, Pastor Mike just preaches condemnation. Why? Because I tell you what the Bible says. Literally? I mean, really? Is that it? That can't be right. Because Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now non, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to the idea, the understanding that the Holy Ghost wants you to live a clean life. There's no condemnation about that. It's simple truth. Now, if you resist it, that's when the war starts. The war between your spirit, who knows to do right and knows the word of God is right, and your flesh, which really wants to just do whatever it wants to do. Paul said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man. In other words, here's how you put on the new man is renew your mind to the truth of the word. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, he doesn't say get saved. These people are already saved. So the new man is not talking about becoming saved, becoming one with Jesus. It's talking about presenting your body a living sacrifice. In other words, living your outward life, your behavior, your lifestyle in line with the new creature that you've already been made. That's the new man he's talking about putting on. He's talking about living a lifestyle of righteousness and true holiness. Well, if the Holy Ghost is telling us to do that, then it must be possible for us to do. It must not be out of range. Now, the devil may be telling you or telling me or whoever that that's, you'll never attain that. But if the Holy Ghost is telling us we can, then we can. Okay, how are we going to accomplish this, Paul? Verse 25, wherefore, put away lying. Putting away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Why should you have to tell Christians to quit lying? Kind of sad, isn't it? Be ye angry and sin not. Why would you have to tell Christians to control their anger so that it didn't lead them into sin? That's pretty sad, isn't it? Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. Are you kidding me? I've got a pastor friend out in uh, the Inland Empire a number of years ago. This happened a long time ago. He's got a great big church, kind of an inner city type church. He said, uh, he said, we got into our new building, big building, big expenses. He said, we were looking at everything we could to try to trim our expenses. And we realized we really weren't making money on our bookstore. So we just shut our bookstore down. He said, Mike, I found out that I was losing fifteen to $1,700 a month in theft in our church bookstore. Well, I guess you could look at it and say at least they were stealing something that was good for them. But isn't that sad? Christians coming to church, stealing from the church bookstore. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands that the, that the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. He said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now, corrupt communication, if you look this up in different translations, it's got a lot of different meanings, and I'm not sure which one it is. I'm not sure which is the best translation to use. Many translations say, quit talking filthy talk. You know, one of the things that amazes me is how the, how the everyday discourse has changed just in my lifestyle. I'm amazed at the F word. 
I mean, that seems to be the, the, the general descriptive word for everything. And I don't find a whole lot of difference in the church in the world in that. It's kind of funny with some people, they'll slip up, you know, and say something around me, kind of get comfortable, forget it's me. <laughs> then it comes out and they say, oh, I don't know where that came from. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> I wonder. Never said that before, have you? Notice verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Notice he says our lifestyle and the words that we say can grieve God, grieve the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean he leaves us. It means he's grieved that we're not living up to who he's created us to be. Now, folks, there's no condemnation in that, but it's got to be recognized as truth that we need to make the adjustments that need to be made. It's not a condemnation. It's God saying come into a better life. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Please notice that the Christians are acting the same way the world does. A lot of these are listed as the the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And verse 32, and be ye kind one to another. Be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Tenderhearted. And it's sad you'd have to tell Christians to be tenderhearted toward each other. And it's sad you'd have to tell Christians that Holy Ghost would have to tell Christians to be kind to each other. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving. We're right back to where we started. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anybody. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God. For Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now, what does this mean? It means very simply this, folks. It means the love of God is is poured out towards you, is shown to you, such that nothing you've ever done or ever will do is so great that it can keep you from him. Forgiveness is always available from God to you, no matter what you've ever done or whatever what you ever might do. But it also means that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart so that nothing anybody ever does to you cannot be forgiven. We're supposed to forgive like God forgives. What sin is great enough for God not to offer you Jesus? There is no sin that great. There's only one sin that ever sends anybody to hell, and that's the sin of rejecting Jesus. And you control that, not God. Well, if the same love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts is the love of God that caused us to be born again, then what can somebody ever do to us or against us that we're not able to forgive. David said in several places in the Psalms, he said, judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness. That's a pretty healthy statement for somebody that's not been made righteous. He didn't have the righteousness of God in his day. He had a promise of it. He saw it. In a time to come through the, through the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God being made for him. But he said, judge me, he said two things, judge me according to my righteousness, and he said, judge me according to my integrity. Folks, I'm here to tell you that since there is no condemnation to you because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, it is a freeing thing. It is a liberating thing to be able to stand and say, I'm walking in love and I'm walking in integrity. 
It's a place where you can say, Satan, you have no part in my life because I'm walking in love. It's a place where you can say, I'm living my life honestly according to the word. Satan, you have no part in me. That's the place that God wants you to live. That's what he means when he says the just shall live by faith. Because in order for faith to work, faith works by love. Therefore, you're going to have to walk according to the spirit. Now, I don't care what anybody else preaches. I don't care what anybody else says. The whole of the Bible is true. The whole of the Bible is true. Let me, uh, I hate to end on a, on, a, uh, on a negative note, but I need to tell you this story. A number of years ago, you can close your Bibles, I'm done. Once you shut your Bibles, that's it, I'm through. <laughs> that just means I have to quote from there on out. A number of years ago, this was a long time ago. I don't know how long ago it was. I really don't want to figure it out. But a long time ago, there was a lady in our church that, uh, that died of uh, cancer. Sweet lady involved in so many things, involved with the youth ministry and so many different things. Lovely person. Had cancer for a number of years. Had cancer before she ever came to our church. I prayed for her a dozen times, maybe more. I prayed for her on my own a number of different times. There were times where she would have uh, episodes and a crisis would come up. She'd go to the hospital. I visited her in the hospital maybe ten times. Well, the short of the story is that she died of cancer, believing God, confessing his word, trying to stand on his word the whole way. And it created a real problem for some people, some people that were close to her, some people in the church. She had, still had a lot of friends from uh, uh, some of the church that she had, uh, church friends that she'd come from in years past and had made a lot of friends here too, or had friends even before she came, I guess, here. And it created a problem for some people because I had a lot of people come to me afterwards and say, Pastor Mike, why did so-and-so die? I know that they were believing God. I confessed the word with them. I agreed with them. I heard what they said and so forth. Well, um, I knew it was going to cause a problem when she, when she went home to be with the Lord. It was, on one hand, it was kind of a relief for the family because she had suffered so much. God had done some wonderful things for her because there were times where the doctor said, you won't get out of the hospital this time. This is it. You better tell your family goodbye. And she'd be raised up by the power of God and, and, and go on for uh, another year or so or whatever it was, whatever period of time. I just saw the power of God lift this woman up time after time after time. You could see that her faith would, would receive to a certain point, but there was just something that we just in prayer just couldn't get through, couldn't figure it out. Well, she died, and, uh, you know, there's usually about a week between the death and the, and the funeral and stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of struggling with it a little myself, not because I need to know. I just need to know how to address the people in the church that, that have questions about it. Um, I, I saw something in the scripture where I learned from Brother Hagin, really, uh, years ago, before I ever started the church. Paul talked to, when he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, I left Trophimus in my lead him sick. Well, if Paul left some people behind sick, I shouldn't expect that I'm going to do any differently. And there's no inst- instruction, there's no information in the Bible about if he ever got well, no information about whatever happened to him. Paul just said, I had to leave him in, in a certain city sick. So there are going to be people that, that are left behind sick. And sometimes you're going to know, sometimes you're not going to know, and that's just it. Deuteronomy 29, 29 said, The secret thing belongs to the Lord, but that which is revealed to us belongs to us and our children forever. Some things you're not going to know. Some things are between God and the individual. But I'm kind of seeking the Lord just kind of generally, you know, Lord, how I'm, I know it's going to be a problem. How am I going to deal with this? 
And I, I had no, no instruction on the inside. I really didn't have a witness about it. I knew the things to tell people from the word to comfort them. Specifically, I don't believe in healing because mama got, got healed. I don't believe in healing or the baptism of the Holy Ghost or any of the things of the word because uncle so-and-so got it. I believe in it because the Bible says so, and that's it. If nobody ever gets anything, I still believe God's word. That's just my position. I think that's the position that the Bible tells us we should have, but I've made that decision for myself. You're going to have to decide for yourself. All I can do is try to show you what the Bible says. But I knew it was going to be a problem. Well, the funeral came along. And the funeral, I, I officiated the funeral. I was a pastor for, I don't know, a long time. And so I officiated the funeral. But there was a time for people to, to, to stand up and, and talk about her life and stuff like that. Well, there was a lot of her friends, people that I didn't know, ladies and, and uh, so forth that, uh, that I, I didn't know where they came from. I knew they were Christians from the things they said. But, but beyond that, I didn't know. But almost to a person, these women started standing up and talking about how crushed she was by the divorce that had happened years before in, in her life and about what a lousy guy her, her ex-husband was. Now, her ex-husband was sitting there on the front row with the kids. And this became bash the ex-husband time. Woman after woman after woman stood up and talked about how this lady had suffered so because of what he had done. One of them mentioned the affair that he had had during their, their I mean, it got nasty. I'm sitting off to the side thinking, dear God, what in the world is going to happen? Well, after about six of these, people from our church would stand up. Nobody said a word about it. They just talked about, you know, what a loving person they were. But this group of friends that she had had for all these years stood up and just crucified this ex-husband who's sitting there right in front of them. After about six of these, I'm sitting there and the Lord says, now, do you see why she couldn't receive her healing? And it became very apparent from the things that they said that these are the conversations that this lady would have with her friends when she was talking with them. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any. Now we had some people in our church that were greatly affected by that and they recovered themselves. I'm glad to say they recovered themselves. It was, it shook. There was one person in particular that, that indicated that their faith was shaken, but they got right back in there on the word and said, wait a minute. The word's true no matter what happens. I don't know if they saw the other side of it or not. I never said anything to them about it, but I'm proud to say that they recovered themselves. You see, that's what happens so often. What happens is we see an individual, we see an event that takes place, and there's so many questions that circle and say, well, how could this have happened to them when the word of God says that healing belongs to us? You don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. You don't know what's going on in somebody's life. Now, I'm so glad she made it to heaven, but she made it there early. And I have no doubt in my mind, having seen the power of God raise her up before, I have no doubt in my mind that if she could have crossed that hurdle, if she could have learned to walk in love and learned to forgive, but she thought that it was too great, the the injustice was too great, she could never pass it, never get past it. But folks, the love of God has been shattered abroad in your heart so you can forgive like God forgives. How does God forgive? God said, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. I know that's tough. I know it takes some praying through on some things to forgive things that people have done to you, but you can do it. And it's important for you to do it so that you can inherit the kingdom of God here on the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk in love. Thank you, Father, that the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart. We know that we pass from death to life 
because we love the brethren. We love with your love. The God kind of love that can overcome anything. The God kind of love that can forgive any transgression, any sin, any wrongdoing. Thank you, Father, that we are loved children of a loved Father. Therefore, we can say, judge us according to our righteousness. As we walk in the Spirit, Father, knowing that there is no condemnation, we thank you, Father, for bringing us to the place where there is no hindrance to our faith bringing about the perfect will of God in our lives. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want you to say this after me. Say it from your heart. Say it just loud enough for you to hear yourself say it. I choose to forgive. I refuse to allow any ill will toward any other person from this day forward in Jesus' name. Because of the love of God in me, I forgive now, no matter what. No matter what was done, no matter what they do in the future, I choose to forgive and walk in freedom as I walk in love. Satan, because I have chosen to walk in love, Take your hands off my body. Take your hands off my finances. Take your hands off my life. You have no part in me. For I am a keeper of the new commandment of love. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. Don't forget the newcomers coffee. Those of you that have recently begun to attend the church, we'd love to have a chance to meet you and shake your hand. God bless you. Thank you for being doers of the word. It's a joy to pastor a group of people that put the word first. I really mean that. I love you. God bless you. Have a great day and hopefully we'll see you this evening.